Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. What's the best way to tell a friend they have a little ketchup in their beard or mayo on their face? Martha Burnett has one idea. And that's the expression, there's a gazelle on the lawn, (laughs) or there's a gazelle in the park. I love that. (laughs) Today, Martha Barnett and Grant Barrett from Away With Words share the secret code words families use around the dinner table. That's coming up later in the show. But first, to help us understand the long history of ginseng in Appalachia, I'm joined by Luke Monjay, author of Ginseng Diggers, A History of Root and Herb Gathering in Appalachia. Luke, welcome to Milk Street. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So ginseng was a huge trade item between mostly Appalachia, I guess, uh, and China in the 19th century. But let's start with the obvious question, which is, what is ginseng? Yes. So um, ginseng is a herbaceous perennial plant. Um, It grows about 18 inches high. If you walk by it in the forest, if you didn't know what you were looking for, you you would walk right by it, you know. And it's a medicinal plant long used in Asia um, for a variety of purposes. You write that right after the American Revolution, we were trying to send a trade expedition to China, and a boat reaches China with 100,000 pounds of ginseng. (laughs) So, So ginseng was not just an economic issue for the people digging it, but it also had implications for trade on a national level as well. 
Yeah, you're right. Um, it helped open trade between the United States and China. Uh, the U.S. had traded ginseng and sent it to China for you know a few decades before that, but it had always gone through Great Britain on British ships. But after the revolution, we were eager to, to establish economic independence. And the Chinese were pretty happy over there across the Pacific and didn't want a whole lot of what we had, but they did want ginseng. Um, and so it, it, it helped kind of establish that kind of trade relationship with China. And as a, I guess that's not a crop because it was wild, but you were talking about 25 to 60 cents a pound before the Civil War. You say other plants drew from 2 to 20 cents a pound. Right. So this was, this was gold, in the hills. I mean, this was highly valuable, right? Yes, yes. You know, you could make as much money digging a pound of ginseng as you could working for wages, you know, for uh, a couple of weeks. Right. And it was readily available. I mean, people are talking about digging 60 pounds a day. So let's talk about the commons. You know, in, in England, uh, there was common land in a village where everyone could graze their sheep, for example. But this idea of the commons, common land persisted, I guess, in Appalachia as well. So, for example, if you were digging up ginseng, was there an idea that there was sort of a common claim to land? Yes. Yeah, so the uh, the Appalachian kind of forest commons were never inscribed in law. They were never formalized. I mean, it was more just conducted on local levels between landowners and, and commons users. And it was tradition established fairly early on that these wild plants were property of the harvester. I mean, if you found them, you can dig them wherever they were. But as an economic commodity, it became a a serious trade product, right? Right. I mean, especially early on, when pretty much anybody who knew how to find it could dig it, and they would dig it. So early on, yeah, I mean, it was people of all socioeconomic backgrounds dug it. As one, one guy put it, you know, the best citizens of these counties in West Virginia were the ones digging ginseng. That changes a little bit over time. By the late 19th century, especially in the wake of the post-Civil War Depression, it seems to be only those people who are, you know, uh, landless, land poor, um, on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale were, were the ones digging it. I really love this. You wrote that Daniel Boone was part of this. It was part of the story. Uh, so exactly what do they have to do with ginseng? Yeah. So uh, Daniel Boone, of course, becomes famous as a long hunter, right? And trading uh, furs and skins. But in the uh, 1780s, he moves over to the mouth of Limestone Creek in Kentucky and starts digging ginseng. And he got his sons to dig it. He purchased it from his neighbors, um, became something of a dealer, and then hauled it up the Ohio River uh, on flatboat towards um, Pennsylvania. And he, you know, it, it, the, the flatboat apparently, according to the lore, uh, capsized and sunk and ruined, you know, most of the, the shipment, but he still still received quite a bit of money from it. But yeah, he, he was a big time digger. Was there a domestic market for this? It was almost entirely an export product. Um, it was valued so much as a, as a commodity that people traded it rather than using it. And American medicine never <laughs> developed a fondness for it, um, really, until late in the 20th century when when it becomes part of this kind of natural foods, natural medicines movements. You got to remember what American medicine, kind of the theories underpinning American medicine before the germ theory really takes hold in the late 19th, early 20th century. And so they believed in this in humoral theory. And so it was about balancing the humors. And so you you bleed people, you purge them, you make them throw up, right? You give them diarrhea. I mean, so so what they wanted out of a medicine was 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 action, right? It needed to have a powerful effect. And ginseng just didn't have that powerful effect. It didn't make you throw up, you know, it didn't it didn't give you diarrhea. Um, and so it didn't fit in with a lot of what uh, American physicians kind of believed was was you know effective medicine. Your great-great-grandfather was a, a ginseng digger. Did I get that right? Yeah. So my great-great-grandfather, John Ulysses Greer, was born in 1865, um, right after the war in Pike County, Kentucky. And he loved to dig ginseng. I mean, I think his <laughs> father his father taught him, and he taught his sons, and... Sometimes he'd be gone for, you know, for, for a long time, all afternoon or days, 
and he'd be out singing, you know. So this is in you. This runs in your blood. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there's this huge boom. Every a lot of people are out there with shovels digging. Um, did it continue for a long time? The resource, you know, continued, or was it essentially? wiped out after the 19th century? Yeah, so that's a good question. And this is a question that drove a lot of my research is just how did the diggers treat this resource? You know, it was a commons resource. It was available to everybody. You know, how sustainable was this trade? And so I I found uh, some store ledgers from West Virginia that indicated that some diggers did adhere to to a season, um, to a ginseng season. So ginseng goes to seed sometime in in September and, you know, it doesn't go to seed. You can't replant the seeds, you know. So these merchants refuse to trade in ginseng before September Mm. and it doesn't appear in their books. And so that that indicated to me that at least some communities and at least maybe some stores had established some sort of unofficial ginseng season. It was kind of stabilized, right? People didn't have to just go out and dig as much as they could whenever they found it, wherever they found it. And um, after the Civil War, though, there was just a lot more pressure on this commons industry. You know, everybody took to the woods. People started digging it full time. People from outside of the region started coming into these Appalachian communities and started digging it out. And so you have something of a little more complicated dynamics at work here that, that really leads to the disappearance of ginseng. So, you know, it, it, it was over harvested, but there were people that tried. You know, there were people that tried to steward the resource, replant seeds, but there were also people that um, that were eager to dig it out as soon as they could. Um, so there's always been that tension, I think, in, in Appalachia between kind of responsible stewards of ginseng and, you know, the gold miners of the ginseng trade. Luke, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Chris, thanks for the talk. I enjoyed it. That was Luke Monjay, professor of history at Dalton State College, also author of Ginseng Diggers, a history of root and herb gathering in Appalachia. Today, people in Appalachia are still hunting ginseng, and some are really focused on conserving it. We spoke with one of them, Sarah Jackson, a ginseng steward and sometimes hunter based in Bat Cave, North Carolina. Ginseng hunting is not the easiest thing to do. It's a very elusive plant. Some cultures say that ginseng can hide. And they say that ginseng can choose to only show itself to people that it feels is worthy to harvest it. In my opinion, ginseng is pretty much one of the most beautiful plants. I would prefer it even over, you know, some of the more showy wildflowers. You know, when it sprouts from the ground in spring, it's this beautiful kind of light green color definitely like a spring green and oftentimes through the season it turns kind of like this dark kind of glossy green and it develops these ruby red berries and as summer moves to autumn the plant turns from dark green to bright gold maybe that's one reason ginseng is called green gold it's because it literally turns gold When you're out ginseng hunting, there's bears. Here in Bat Cave, we have copperheads, we have rattlesnakes. You know, there's also nettles and briars, but it's definitely always worth it when you see a golden ginseng plant with the red berries gleaming (laughs) sometimes in a a, a beam of sunlight. You you find them and you're like, there it is, (laughs) there you are. Um, it definitely makes all of those things worth it. That was ginseng steward and sustainability advocate Sarah Jackson in Bat Cave, North Carolina. You can learn more about ginseng stewardship and conservation at unitedplantsavers.org. Next up, it's time to take your calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Sarah, you and I have a disagreement. and Just one? Well, one I'm going to talk about now. You decided at some point in your career not to do all the mise en place at the beginning. I mean, you've been a chef. 
I get it because you know what you're doing and you know when to do things ahead of time and when not to. But I think that for people learning to cook who are not as trained as you are, getting everything prepped ahead of time I think is really important for success in the kitchen. So now, (laughs) defend yourself. All right, all right. Here's what I'm going to say. There's two different kinds of cooks. I mean, there's a million different kinds of cooks, but there's two basic categories. People who cook for fun and pleasure and to learn. And people, and sometimes they overlap, sometimes they do, and people who have to get dinner on the table. And as a working mother for a million years, I was in the latter category, even though I started in the former category. And when you have to get dinner on the table every night of the week, you start looking for any which way to cut corners. And so that's when mise en place went right out the window. Now, you're right. I do have a little more knowledge than most people. But even so, if you're working with a simple recipe, you can look at it. And you just need to spend the time to read through the whole thing. And you can see what things you could do while something else is cooking. I think any beginning cook could figure that out. But if you're the kind of person who just wants to have excitement in cooking, you should do your mise en place. I agree with you there. I just think I'm so sold on doing all the prep, cleaning up, having everything ready, and then doing the cooking. I just think makes cooking so much more fun, and the success rate is much higher. Well, I agree the success rate is much higher. Yeah. Anyway, we kind of sort of kind of Half maybe agree. agree. Okay. Half agree. Let's take a call. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Brad. Hi, Brad. Where are you calling from? Washington, D.C. And what is your question today? Well, I've been having a bit of salad dressing problems lately. I've been for the longest time been just doing a basic, really good balsamic vinaigrette. And lately, it's just not doing it for me. I, I was... Wondering if you guys had any recommendations for recipes or little tricks up your sleeve how to improve my salad dressing game. I don't know if you're talking about just a traditional vinaigrette, but in that department, you're probably not adding enough salt right off the bat. The other thing is, have you tried sherry vinegar just as a different base? It's really wonderful with mustard and olive oil and salt and pepper. Now, if you want to go sort of a different route, if you take a very small pear and you simmer it with vinegar and cook it down with vinegar, a little water, and a little honey, and then puree it, and add some walnut oil. Fancy. And that is really yummy, particularly if you have a dressing with some, say, blue cheese in it. And then last but not least would be a garlic cream dressing. This also has sherry vinegar in it. Take sherry and mustard and cut up clove of garlic and, you know, that you sort of run around the bowl you're making it in and salt again. And then you add half olive oil and half heavy cream. And it's really a beautiful dressing. I mean, whisk it in slowly that coats, say, butter lettuce. And it's just so yummy. But now I know Chris is going to take you around the world. Well, yeah, I have a lot of things to say. First of all, it depends on the lettuce. Let's say there are two kinds. They're sort of very mild, like butter lettuce, right? And then there are the sort of more bitter, radicchio, et cetera. So let's assume it's a mild lettuce. The big problem is most people use a vinegar that's way too high in acid. So a red wine vinegar can be 7% acid, 6% acid. And that causes all sorts of problems because why would you put a sharply acidic vinegar on a very tender, mild green? So my argument is start with a vinegar that's very low acid. My favorite is calamansi vinegar, which is made with sour oranges, which is a little fruity. And yes, you'd have to go online to buy it. Uh, You could use a rice wine vinegar, which is 4 4.5%. So here's what I do. I don't make an emulsification, which will blow Sarah's head off. No. And I just use the following things. Malden salt, which I sprinkle not in the dressing, right on the lettuce. I use a little bit of a very low acid vinegar. I use a good olive oil, although you could use grapeseed oil, for example. And don't use much dressing. Underdress. And finally, I add a little za'atar, which is a herb mix from the Middle East. Za'atar is a wild herb like marjoram or thyme or oregano. It has some sumac in it, which is a sort of lemony berry and sesame seeds. You can buy that online too, but you don't have to use it. And toss it for a minute or two and you're good to go. If you have bitter greens, then you can up the game. And one final dressing for vegetables especially is a classic like Japanese formula, which is four parts soy sauce, two parts mirin, one part toasted sesame oil, and a little sugar, one part sugar. 
And that's a great all-purpose dressing for Brussels sprouts or carrots or whatever. It's a great salad dressing for vegetables. I have to add one more thing, too. I'm sorry. I thought of something else. You're going to say emulsification? No. Okay. Fresh herbs are fantastic. Yes. Excellent. So leaves of basil and parsley and dill and, you know, the softer herbs are wonderful. Just throw them in like they're another lettuce leaf. Some places in the world, they use just herbs for their salad. Right. Right. And then finally, when you toss the salad, use your hands. That's Good the point. best tool. Seriously, just make sure they're impeccably clean. I'm rapidly taking notes, but I think okay. I'll start with the salt, get my hands dirty, and then think about vinegars. All right, this is great. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, Sarah and I are ready to take your calls. Give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Michael Saber from Silver City, New Mexico. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty good. How can we help you? I, I've seen online numerous times different methods of pre-soaking beans before you cook them to ensure that they get soft and they're not hard inside and they cook adequately. I've seen baking soda, I've seen add salt, I've seen don't add salt, there's acids and you don't want to use acids. And I'm wondering, what does the science, what does the culinary aspects of it say? And also, are vitamin B vitamins reduced if you have too much baking soda? Okay, in order, you have to soak beans overnight. If you do a quick pre-soak, you know, the old bring it to a boil, let it sit off the heat for an hour doesn't really work very well. The reason you want to soak overnight and you use two quarts of water for one tablespoon of table salt or two tablespoons of kosher salt. The salt helps soften up the outside of the bean to allow water to get in. And that uh-huh. will allow them to plump up nicely as they w- you'll see the next day that they've grown at least twice in size, maybe three times. It's like looking at the Easto. And you will get even cooking and you'll get perfectly cooked beans. It's absolutely essential. And the salt is what really does the trick. Some people do use a little baking soda, but just one tablespoon of table salt to two quarts of water uh, will do the trick done overnight. Then it'll be great. And obviously just drain and rinse them and then cook them. It also gets some of the digestive issues out because you're soaking the beans and then you discard that water, which is also helpful. I agree 100% with Chris. The beans are so much more evenly cooked, so much more tender and so much better seasoned. But also after you drain them and rinse them, then you put them in fresh water, you add a little more salt. Now, as for the acid, that is a complicated question. I've never understood Boston baked beans. They don't bake if you add vinegar or mustard to them. You add that at the end. The end. After they're basically baked. And so acid will slow down the process. Um, I do believe that if you just cooked them forever with the acid, you'd probably get there, but it would, you know, be a lot of work. No, I, I, years ago, I did Boston baked beans and I put the acid in at the beginning. Eight hours later, okay. Never they were mind. still, they were Never still cooking. So they basically need to be cooked, and then you yeah. add the molasses and the ketchup and all the other stuff. But the other thing about the baking soda is it does speed up the cooking time, but you've already sped up the cooking time if you soaked them overnight. And if you overdo the baking soda, it's going to taste sort of soapy. So I tend not to use baking yeah. soda. It's already been sped up enough. Uh-huh. There you go. All Excellent. right. Thank you for calling. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Grace Cho on food, family, and war. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most J Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Grace Cho, author of Tastes Like War. Grace, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Our pleasure. You know, we've read a lot of books where people talk about immigration or going from one place to another and the importance, of course, of food. But I think that your book, Tastes Like War, really takes this to a a whole new level because the difference between the beginning point and the ending point is really so, so extreme. Let's start with your mother in Korea, um, during the Korean War, mm-hmm. when Japan was was there. Just talk about her life then, what you know about it. Yeah, you know, she didn't really talk much about her life growing up because I think it was so traumatic that it took decades for that story to sort of unfold. 
because whenever I asked her about Korea, she would just sort of go blank. Um, and even as a, a child, I could tell that something really traumatic had happened to her. So in my adult life, I started to research the Korean War and, um, you know, sort of piece together what I learned from my research and the, the little crumbs of information that my mom dropped over the decades. And so the very first thing I'd ever learned about her experience during the Korean War was that at age nine, she became a refugee with her family. But there was so much chaos during the movement of refugees that it was really common for people to get separated from their children. So she told me a story about how she got separated from her family and then had to make her way back to her family's home and found some kimchi that my grandmother had buried in the backyard and some rice in the pantry. And the way she described it was that she survived off of that for um, three seasons. And then eventually her family came back to the house. And so that was my first, uh, you know, one of my first revelations about my mom's experience in the war. When I read that story, the, the thing that struck me was three seasons. Yeah. It does speak to sort of like not being aware of a calendar, yeah. but you, you mark time by the changes and the environment and the weather. It just struck me as a nine-year-old eating kimchi and rice by herself in the family home for many months. Yeah. Just yeah, and right. not knowing if she'd ever see her family again. And I think of all the things in the book, that, that one struck me the most because of the age and also her resourcefulness. I mean, Absolutely. And then as a teenager, she starts working as a bar girl. And that was also not a great experience, I guess. Yeah. And I don't actually know with any certainty the details. I only have guesses based on, you know, again, these crumbs of information that my mom dropped, as well as some things that I learned from other family members, and then filled in with the research that I did about post-war South Korea and the way in which the South Korean government established all of these entertainment districts around the U.S. bases. And so all I know is that my mom was, you know, it was sometime between her high school years and her early 20s when she went to work at one of these bases. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of the women who worked there ended up doing some sort of sex work. And even if they didn't, they were associated with sex work. And so they were highly stigmatized in Korean society for fraternizing with the American soldiers. And so that stigma sort of followed her and all of these other women throughout their lives. So tell us what happens next. They end up in the state of Washington, south of Seattle, Olympia area. How did that happen? So my father was a white American merchant marine. And I guess a couple of years after they married, when I was a year and a half, we moved to his hometown of Chehalis, Washington. But it was a very small, conservative, rural town, almost no people of color. And as far as I know, we were the only Koreans in the town at that time. Um, and so it was a very isolating experience for my mom to, you know, not only leave her home country and her family, but then to arrive in this community where there's no one else of her kind and where a lot of people were pretty xenophobic and, you know, didn't exactly welcome her. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. On one hand, we think about her childhood and teenage years and how difficult and horrible it was losing a brother in the war, you know, living alone for months at a time. But then she goes somewhere where the privation and the harshness of war, et cetera, is removed. Mm -hmm. but it's sort of another kind of hell, right? Right, absolutely. You know, because the other thing to remember is that um, unlike a lot of immigrant families, my mom was cut off from other adults of her ethnicity, race, right. and language, right? Um, and so it was an experience of extreme culture shock of not having that connection and also not having access to Korean food, right. you know, which was another thing that really dawned on me when I was an adult, that I would think back to these memories of how how long and hard she searched for sources for Korean food. And our, during our first few years in the United States, we would make these summer-long trips back to Korea to visit my grandmother. And my mom would come back with a suitcase full right. of supplies to cook Korean food at home. So before we get to food and, and you cooking for her, which is really interesting, let's just talk about her mental state. You think she had schizophrenia. 
you write, she watches Wheel of Fortune and thinks that the puzzles are sending her secret messages. Is this something that happened early on in your childhood or is it something that sort of manifested itself later? Yeah, I noticed the signs of it when I was 15, you know, and I think one of the first things I noticed was that she had stopped foraging suddenly. Um, She had less of an interest in food, which was very unusual for her. Uh, But then more and more, I started to notice things like, you know, it seemed like she was talking to herself or arguing with someone who wasn't there. She started talking about government conspiracies and how she was involved or how other members of my family were involved. And I was so scared that I didn't want to talk to anybody until I had done my own research. And I went to the high school library to read the 12th grade psychology textbook. And I matched up her behaviors with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, I told my dad and my brother about it, but neither of them believed me. And so then my next step was to go to the community mental health care center to speak with a counselor who then told me that it did sound a lot like paranoid schizophrenia, but there, there was nothing that they could do for my mom, um, which sort of then led me on this path to want justice because I experienced right. it at that young age as a huge injustice that she had been turned away and that I had been told that you know she was basically disposable. I, I know people who have bipolar conditions and other things. And and my experience is that they do not understand this at all. They throw some drugs at it, but I think it's poorly understood. Right. And, you know, I think what you're saying is that the the medical model of thinking about these experiences of the mind is so limited, especially in the 1980s. The thinking then was that it was purely biological. There were no social factors. It wasn't connected to trauma. And the way that you treat it is that you look at these voices as symptoms that you can make disappear with medication. So you ended up, I I don't know, as a response to her condition, but you ended up cooking for her. And that, just tell that story because I think that's so interesting. Well, I didn't start cooking for her until... 1998, which was when she moved uh, from Washington State to New Jersey, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And so I would go down on weekends to cook for her because her interest in cooking had been consistently waning over the years. So it was part of this effort to try to get her to eat more, eat things that were nutritious. It was very difficult for me at first because she rejected the food that I was offering, But eventually, she started to eat, like little by little, she started to eat the food that I was cooking. And at some point, she started to ask for Korean food. Hmm. And that's when I think there was a turning point, that something sort of woke up in her. And so she, you know, there were all of these experiences in which she would say, you know, I want you to make me some konkuksu, or I want you to make me sengtejige. These were dishes that I had never tasted. Like she never cooked them for me as a child. They were dishes that my grandmother used to cook for her. And so the more we did this, the more I came to understand that she was not only teaching me how to cook Korean food, but she was teaching me how to care for her because these were her comfort foods Hmm. that she hadn't eaten since she was a child. You, you, you wanted to ex- explain what those dishes are. Oh, yeah, sorry. So konguksu is a, a cold noodle dish in a fresh soy milk, a fresh savory soy milk. And it's a summer dish because you eat it cold with ice cubes. There are very few ingredients, but the just the freshness and the depth of flavor of those ingredients makes the dish really delicious. Um, and sengte chige is um, like a, a white fish stew with radishes and a lot of garlic and red pepper. So it's very spicy, garlicky, just packs a punch of flavor. And so the first time I made that for her, she sighed and said, hmm. I haven't tasted this for 40 years. And, you know, that's when I knew that there was something really powerful about cooking these meals for her. Because growing up, she wanted to keep me out of the kitchen. She didn't want me to cook because she saw cooking as something that was at odds with becoming a scholar. She wanted me to study and get an education. So did this help her mental state in her later years that she reconnected through the food? 
or not? It, well, it did. I, and, you know, I don't know how much of it was the food. I think some of it was the food. But I think it was also that we shared these meals together in a really intimate way, you know, because I, I took this as an act of her giving me a gift, which was the gift of being able to connect my family history. Because right. for so much of my life, all of that had been foreclosed to me. But here she was teaching me how to cook the foods that my grandmother used to make. And in doing that and in sharing these meals together, she would also sometimes tell stories about those meals and about the people who used to cook them for her. And after a while, she even started to talk a little bit about the war. You know, so I, I felt like there was this healing going on um, that wasn't just between her and the food, but about what the, you know, the collective act of doing this provided for us. So it sort of healed the wounds between us, but also the wounds of our traumatic family history and the collective history. Because we think about food as medicine sometimes, medicine for the body or medicine for the soul, but I haven't really seen much on food as medicine for the collective wound. Right. right, because this was addressing like this Korean diasporic history that was so full of trauma and still is. Let's go back to this issue of culture shock and, and mental illness. W- where do you come out on that? We, we talked briefly about schizophrenia, and I assume you believe that the shock she went through while in Korea and then coming here had a lot to do with her mental state later on. Oh, absolutely. You know, like the the things that happen in one's mind are often manifestations of the way we interact with the social world. And so in the the social scientific research on schizophrenia now, they've identified certain social risk factors. And, you know, for my mom, a lot of them originated in the wartime experience and the post-war experience. But then immigration itself is a social risk factor for schizophrenia. And so is being a person of color in a white neighborhood. And so once I started to do that research, I really looked back on our immigration experience as one of the triggers for my mom's you know, mental health decline. And then you tell a story about when she died and, and bringing something that you wanted uh, with her when she was cremated, right? Yeah. She died really suddenly, so I didn't expect it to happen. And, and the last time I saw her, she asked me to get her sengsanjun, which is a fish pancake. And um, so when I went to the funeral home, I took the sengsanjun with me. And I asked the, the funeral director if he could send it with her <laughs> for the cremation. And then he gave me a moment to be alone with her. And so mm-hmm. I, I said to her that I hadn't forgotten about the sengsanjun. Your book is entitled Tastes Like War. What does that mean? What tastes like war? So I took the title from a moment in which I went to visit my mom in her apartment in New Jersey. And I asked if she was getting enough to eat. And she said that she had some powdered milk, but that she couldn't stand the taste of it. And I asked why. And she said, it tastes like war. Mm-hmm. Because during the American occupation and then during the Korean War, there was an experience that a lot of Koreans had of receiving American food aid, and that often in that food aid came powdered milk, which is not part of a Korean diet. So you will not find dairy anywhere in traditional Korean cuisine. Most Koreans are lactose intolerant. And so it, it had reminded me of something from my research in which one woman spoke about how her village was so excited to get these barrels of food from the Americans and that they thought it might be rice or barley and they drooled at the thought of so much food. And when they opened it, it was powdered (laughs) milk and they were disappointed, but they still drank it. And then they all suffered for days with diarrhea. Um, And so that title, just it just really spoke to me in thinking about how so much of my mom's longings around food and her rejection of food was tied up in this trauma of the Korean War and the effects of U.S. imperialism. And so when thinking about the book as a food memoir, 
I didn't really want it to be a typical food memoir. I wanted it to really explore some of these really difficult moments and the dark side of the foods that we eat and how how the you know the food that we eat doesn't just represent our warm fuzzy moments, it can also represent our traumas. Grace, it's been um, it's just really been a, a a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Grace Cho, author of Taste Like War. You know, there's a lot of science about food and memory. The key takeaway is that food is emotional. Scientists claim that the area of the brain that stores food memories is also responsible for emotion as well as location, hence the power of McDonald's Happy Meals. But for me, a taste of beaten biscuits reminds me of a wake in Baltimore. A molasses cookie brings me back to a Vermont farmhouse. A sip of cold cream soda puts me in a 1960 Green Ford pickup after a long, hot day of hang. You know, the sooner we realize that we are emotional beings, the quicker we'll come to terms with our essential natures, creatures desperately seeking our own version of Happy Meals. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett share the secret code words families use around the dinner table. That's right up after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, spaghetti with ricotta, tomatoes, and herbs. J.M., how are you? I'm great. You know, both of us have spent a little time in Rome over many years, and uh, you can find 
very good food, and you can find, I hate to say it, mediocre food. And that especially is true of pasta, right? Absolutely. However, the good news is you were in Rome recently, and you found a place that served the world's simplest pasta dish that was also extraordinary and also had a lot of teachings about the secrets of Italian pasta, right? Yeah, you know, I was really impressed by this recipe. I was at a restaurant called Felici e Testaccio, and Testaccio is a neighborhood in Rome, and it's frankly kind of a rough-and-tumble neighborhood. And the restaurant was founded in 1936 by Felice Trivelloni. He was famous for two things, his cacio e pepe and his foul temper. Apparently, <laughs> even regulars were thrown out of the restaurant on his whim. Even if they had reservations, he didn't care. I love this guy. Apparently he did this, though, because there were so many kind of rough-and-tumble folks in his neighborhood who might need a meal. He always saved places for them in the restaurant. At least that's how the mythology tells it. Mm. Along the way, you know, in addition to his cacio e pepe and other pastas, you know, the classic Roman pastas, he created a dish of his own, which was pasta e felice. And it was just a really surprisingly good and wonderfully simple pasta. So is there anything special about how to make this? There's a secret to the recipe or is it pretty much business as usual? Well, you know what? That's the best part of it. It's so simple. You don't need any secrets. You just need really fresh ingredients and to use the power of pasta because that's really what's going on here. You're using al dente pasta and it's starchy cooking water to create a sauce in an instant using chopped up grape tomatoes, tons of herbs like mint, basil, thyme, oregano, marjoram. And ricotta cheese. And as we have learned, you know, the Italians love to toss their pasta because when you toss it, you're working all those starches that then mix with the water, mix with the cheese, and it creates a sauce. And so you toss this fresh pasta with the cheese, with the tomatoes, which are now releasing their juices because you've salted them and you let them like ooze into the pasta and you've got all those herbs and you toss it and you toss it and you toss it. And the result is this just delicious fresh sauce that has so much flavor from very few ingredients, actually. Well, there are two things about this recipe that struck me. One is you said lots of herbs, a cup and a half. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. you didn't say gargantuan <laughs> amount of herbs. The other thing is this idea of using less water. You said starchy pasta water, but we're cooking this in a little under two quarts of water, seven cups, which is a classic Italian technique. Then right. the water has higher starch content, and some of that water is put back in to help finish the pasta and the sauce, right? Exactly. You want those starches. That's why we, you know, we create this super starched cooking water, because that's really right. what's going to bring everything together. And it's going to give it that creaminess that you want in a pasta sauce and that clingability. So I spent 35 years boiling pasta in four quarts of water like everybody else in America. <laughs> and now, sorry, <laughs> my mistake. Use less water, get more starch, have a better sauce. Well, for once, an incredibly simple recipe that's also delicious Pasta with ricotta, tomatoes, and herbs. Jam, thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for pasta with ricotta, tomatoes, and herbs at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Now let's hear from Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant and Martha, how are you guys? Hi, Chris. Hi, we're doing great. And we have a lot on our minds this week. But it's all in secret code. <laughs> it is. Okay, I'm ready. All right, well, the aspect of language that we want to talk about this time is secret codes around the dinner table. Now, of course, uh. you know that there are those signals that couples develop to indicate to each other that, you know, right. it's been a great dinner party, but now it's time to leave, honey. You know, that, that raised eyebrow or, or maybe you're the person hosting the dinner party, but it's time to wind things down. And so you do that kind of meaningful shift in your chair when there's a lull in the conversation. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, I'll, t I'll tell you how I do it. In my okay. heyday of dinner parties, when it got to be like 11, 30, 12, mm -hmm. I, I just stood up and said, I'm going to bed now. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just leave the room. <laughs> and I found that extremely effective. Well, yeah, yes. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but assuming one has manners 
Can you give me some pointers here? Well, I can tell you about the fact that starting in the mid-19th century and the early part of the 20th century, there was another kind of spoken code that families sometimes used, hmm. particularly if they had kids around the table. And these were initialisms. They were usually sets of three letters that a parent might murmur to remind kids to leave enough food for the guests. Like FHB. Yes. Yeah. yes. Oh, no, I used that as a kid. That was around our dinner table. But the thing that was so stupid is that the guests obviously knew exactly what it meant. <laughs> so I never, I was always confused by the secret language that was no secret, right? Well, there was a time when FHB wasn't a secret, when it was just yeah. kind of mysterious or everyone pretended that they didn't know. But let's explain it. Right. Well, yes. Um, FHB stands for Family Hold Back. And Chris, as you suggested, the problem with a secret code like that is that pretty soon everybody knows what you're talking about. But there were several other codes that people used instead of this. Grant, there was a company first. I see. CF. Yeah, CF. And maybe these were because FHB became too well-known, mm -hmm. or FHO, family hold-off, or family hands-off, mm -hmm. uh, family stop-eating, FSE. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> FSE. And this one is strange, FSL, family strike light, meaning oh. to take small portions. Yeah. Why wouldn't, before the dinner party, the parents say, just be careful how much you take? I mean, the, 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 in other words, the, the, this is something that transpired during the course of the meal when the amount of, of remaining food became dangerously low. So one had to send out a coded alert to the family. Well, Chris, Martha said the important word earlier, and it's children. You have children, Chris? Uh, many. Yes. How many times do you have to tell them to do something? Grant, once again, you've gotten right to the point. Yes, <laughs> Reminders are, are needed with children. Infinite number. Yeah. But, you know, once everyone's had their fill and the guests have pushed back or maybe they've gone to the other room and, and the children are still there, hopefully looking for seconds and thirds and fourths, there's a whole set of other ones that you can say that mean that it's time to dig in. And they're pretty great. Uh, PMK. Plenty more in oh. kitchen. Mm -hmm. Or FPI, family pitch in. I have to say in my family, nobody ever used those second half of terms. We, we never heard the family pitch in <laughs> yeah, part. No. It was always the don't pitch in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're at the table, Chris, and you see a friend of yours has food on their face, how do you signal that they've got something on their face? I, I would probably make eye contact, lift my napkin, and wipe my face in the same place where they have mm. food. Significantly. Yes. Yes. You wouldn't just shout, you got some schmutz. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did say I'd stand up and say I'm going to bed, so maybe I would do that too. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a very interesting expression that we've gotten calls a couple of times about on our show, and that's the expression, there's a gazelle on the lawn, <laughs> <laughs> or there's a gazelle in the park. I love that. And as Grant was suggesting, that's something that you say to alert someone that they have a little bit of something or other in their beard. Okay, but this is like FHB. You're sitting here, there's eight people around the table, it's very elegant, and everyone's all dressed up. And then you just, out of the blue, go, there's a gazelle in the park. <laughs> like, nobody's going to notice. Well, but why do we use euphemisms at all? Everyone knows what you say if you say, I'm going to the bathroom. The powder room. The powder room. Right, we have all these euphemisms in order to take off a little bit of the unpleasantness out of it. Well, I, I, th I think there's another aspect of this, which is it shows you care enough about your guests that's uh, a good and one. your mm -hmm. friends mm -hmm. to go out of the way to put it in a way that's not obvious. Right. Every, everyone knows what you just said. It's just you, you, you took the time and effort to say it in a way that was a little more sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the movie Gorky Park with Lee Marvin yeah. and William Hurt? Uh -huh. There's a scene between the two of them where one of them says to the other one when some food escapes the mouth, a man overboard. And I guess that's another way to do it. <laughs> Slightly less sophisticated. <laughs> and less picturesque than the gazelle yeah. on the lawn. Okay, guys. So let's assume you're tired of this conversation. <laughs> you want to go oh, to something else? So, so Grant or Martha, what would you say to the other person to sort of indicate you're ready to, to move on? 
Well, if Martha and I were here and we'd come together in the same car, I would do what my father always did when he was impatient to leave, kind of stand not far from the doorway and rattle my keys. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone eventually learned what he meant by that. All of the family knew all branches, but he never stopped doing it. So, Martha, do you have a code word you use or something? Well, I I do, and and my spouse and I change them quite often, you know, like passwords to make sure that nobody <laughs> ever learns to read our code word, but yes, or code phrase. Um, but I can, I can tell you the most recent one is we add UC to the end of a sentence. Oh, now that's very subtle. Do you like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You say things mm-hmm. like, I'm really tired, let's leave UC. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, Chris is putting on yeah. his slippers, you see. <laughs> yeah. I really love that. Grand Martha, uh, thank you so much, and I hope we didn't keep you up. No, not at all. <laughs> not thank at you, all. Chris. A pleasure as always. <laughs> that was Grant Barron and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. We have 200 more episodes you can always find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our television show, or learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. We're on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week and every week with more food stories, and thanks as always for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.